Hello and welcome to the Beach House 34 podcast. I'm your host, Christine Worth. In this episode, we're continuing on our Amityville episode. This is episode two. If you missed part one, uh, it's very important that you listen to that first because uh, a lot of this might not make sense if you don't. So without further ado, let's finish up Amityville. The last time we spoke, the Lutzes had moved into the home and they had been experiencing some pretty severe paranormal activity. And the last thing that we talked about was that Kathy had just seen some eyes outside of a window that were red and beady and the window was six feet above ground level. So that night they went to bed and after about 10 minutes, George woke up and made a sound that was like a low wailing sound. He insists that a second and totally different voice came out of his mouth and the voice said, it's in Chris's room. I've got to get it out of there. He then turned to Kathy and asked her, did that really happen? The rest of that night was spent in terror. It wasn't until the sun came up that they felt safe enough to finally go to sleep. Later that same day, George again called the priest who had now said that he'd been studying on the subject. And this is not originally Father Ray. This is the priest that Father Ray eventually got them in touch with. And this priest said that the only way to purge the house was for a priest to stay there for three days and say a mass each day, ideally at noon. This priest, however, wouldn't do it. He instead said that they should call a priest in from England because the clergy there were more familiar with haunted houses. He further did tell the Lutz family, though, that they should just up and leave. They should just leave and do it right away. Well, they didn't. They stayed that night, and George again went through the house on his own opening windows and saying the Lord's Prayer in each corner of the room. He got so frustrated, he eventually just yelled, Get out! Once he was finished, he asked the kids to help him close all the windows that he had opened. Now, all of a sudden, one of the kids, Danny, screams out in pain. He had been closing the window in the sewing room, and when George and Kathy got there, an aluminum storm window had fallen on his hands. Now, the pressure of the window, though, was far greater than what an aluminum window should be. And George and Kathy had a really difficult time getting it back open. Kathy took Danny downstairs to treat the small cut he'd gotten. But George stayed in the sewing room. George said, quote, I knew that the house was telling me that what I had just done had no effect at all. I was so angry I could have killed. And for the first time, 
he realized the rage that Ron Jr. must have felt. They went to bed that night, and again, the noises started back up. But this time, they were worse than ever before. George woke up and could hear the boys' beds above him slam and move across the floor. But he was literally frozen in place. He was completely paralyzed and unable to move and get out of bed to help. As he tried to turn to Kathy for help, he realized that she wasn't there, but then noticed her levitating above the bed and starting to move toward the wall. He felt something get into the bed and sit down on the mattress. He described it as feeling like a hoofed creature was crawling and stomping on his chest. George fought with everything he had to get out of this paralyzation he was in. And finally, he's released, and he's released enough to drag Kathy back down to the bed. He watched as a Bible on their bedside table flipped over three times. George talked of furniture levitating and hurling across the room. He talked of a 250-pound back door that was ripped from its hinges. Shadows were moving up and down the hallway outside their bedroom door. He remembers seeing their dog, Harry, getting up. He'd make a circle and then lay down, and then he'd get up again. He would get sick. He'd again turn in a circle and then lay down. As he's looking at Kathy, she's, quote, turning into a 90-year-old woman. Her hair became old and dirty. Wrinkles and crow's feet appeared on her face, and she was drooling so much, the sheets were soaked. All the while, doors are opening and slamming shut, and then without warning, it all stops. And Kathy all of a sudden looks like herself again. The next morning when the kids came downstairs, they were absolutely horrified at what had happened the night before. They again reach out to Father Ray, who tells them in no uncertain terms to leave the house. But something in the house has a hold on them, and they just don't want to go. But slowly, painfully, they gathered up some clothes, and finally, that afternoon, they all got into their van and left. As they're driving along down the road, they even heard a banging coming from the outside of the van. It was mid-January, and they'd been in the house for only 28 days. George and Kathy didn't like to talk about what happened that very last night when they left the house. George said, quote, We're not the same family that left that night as we were when we moved in. The Lutzes visited a medium. They talked with clergy, and they talked with psychics and parapsychologists. George is convinced that the house is possessed by a number of spirits, quote, some of whose names I won't pronounce, since merely to mention their names will bring them here. George gets in contact with Jerry Solfin of the Duke University Psychical Research Center, 
and George tells him that there's something he wants to talk to him about that was happening in his house. Jerry sends someone out to start investigating the house, and when there aren't any really quick answers, George starts to get a little frustrated. So while George is waiting, and as these weeks go by, George begins to think about what happened to Ron DeFeo. He knew that he probably needed psychological help, but George had no doubt in his mind that Ron had been influenced by whatever was in that house. George felt something had to be done. So some friends of George contacted Ron's attorney, William Weber. Now, Ron's attorney stated that he was contacted by a freelance writer for Newsday named Paul Hoffman. He said that the Lutzes would like to meet him. Mr. Weber didn't believe them, but then realized based on their story that he might be able to make a motion for a new trial on the grounds that the same forces that made the Lutzes leave may also have had an effect on his client, Ron DeFeo, and this is what drove him to commit murder. According to Mr. Weber, the reason he agreed to meet with them was because he had been given an oral commitment that, quote, we could get a large advance for a book and a movie. According to George, this was never discussed until quite a few meetings later. Mr. Weber's only goal was to help get his client psychological help. And this is what this is what the Lutzes were led to believe. Mr. Weber then held a press conference with Newsday and Mr. Weber told the Lutzes that Newsday demanded that they be there. So at this press conference, they tell reporters what they had experienced in the house. Now, needless to say, it created a sensation. Their story was all over every major newspaper imaginable. When the story got out, neighbors of the Lutzes didn't believe them. One neighbor said she'd been there multiple times when the DeFeos lived there and nothing other ever happened. Another neighbor flat out said, I think it's a, it's a bunch of lies. An Amityville police sergeant also didn't believe it, but he did say that there had been no official investigation. He stated, quote, Mr. Lutz simply reported that there were vibrations and that he was leaving the house. Mr. Weber, during one of the meetings with the Lutzes, revealed some details of the DeFeo crime. The meeting started in early evening and lasted until the early morning hours over, quote, many bottles of wine. When Mr. Weber then pulled out photographs of the DeFeo crime scene, he said that all of them, quote, then developed what ultimately turned out to be part of the Lutz's version of the possession. Now, the reporter, there's a reporter who's been assigned to this Amityville story, and her name is Laura Didio. She reported that the Lutzes did let her listen to the recording that William Weber had made with them. Uh, before playing the recording, though, George told her, quote, I'm not particularly proud of this. The next day after the Lutzes had sobered up, they didn't feel right about what had happened. And in the tape, you can hear William Weber saying something along the lines of, 
quote, we can get movies, books, film rights. He was already talking about percentages and making deals. George said that Mr. Weber was in the process of putting together some kind of book deal and movie contract with DeFeo. So what Mr. Weber did was then send a copy of this contract to the Lutzes, which including included the Lutzes having to hand over the rights to their story. This included paying DeFeo around 5% of whatever the projects made. It was at this point that the Lutzes broke off all contact with Weber. The Lutzes hated the attention, and they all but disappeared. One reporter from Channel 5, again, the Laura Didio, tracked them down, and they agreed to speak with her. They sat down with Laura for five hours and told her their entire story. Laura then told them that she could get them in contact with people who could help and wondered if they would allow Channel 5 to film this investigation. The Lutzes agreed, and Laura was the one who contacted Ed and Lorraine Warren. And again, if you're not familiar uh, with the couple, um, Ed is a demonologist and Lorraine is a medium. Uh, They both are known as some of the first pioneers of the paranormal uh, research and investigations. They agreed to come down the next day. The Warrens never asked for any money. All that they asked for was if the station would please pay for their gas and their tolls. So on February 26th, 1976, Ed and Lorraine, along with Laura Didio and a Channel 5 crew, went to meet George in front of his former house. But George didn't show up. So they called him and he said, the closest I'll come to that house is four blocks away. I'll give you the keys to the house at a pizza place nearby. The Warrens then went to the location and this is where they met George for the first time. Ed sat down and asked George, what happened to you in that house? George replied, you know. And Ed said, no, I don't know. What happened to you and your family that you were so frightened that you all fled away from the house? Again, George replied, you know. Ed is starting to get a little frustrated by this time. So he again said, no, I don't know. I'm not a clairvoyant. I'm not a medium. I'm an investigator. But the whole time, Ed is thinking that George is just too scared to talk about it. Ed did later find out that the whole reason George didn't want to talk about it was that he didn't want to give it recognition. He didn't want whatever this thing was to show up wherever he was. So the Warrens took the keys from George and they went to the house. At this point, it's just the Warrens, Laura Didio from Channel 5, and a very small news crew. Upon walking into the house, Ed, who admittedly is not a sensitive, could feel a sense of death. And it wasn't because of the people that had been murdered in the house. Upon walking around the house, Lorraine's first reaction was a terrible depression. The house itself looked like the whole family had just gotten into the car and took off to go to the grocery store and that they'd be right back. Plants were left in the sink, draining. 
Clothing was still in the closets. A freezer was stocked full of meat. Uh, two custom motorcycles and a $20,000 boat were in the boathouse. They were all left behind. As the Warrens walked through the house, Ed would ask Lorraine what her impressions were of each room. As she would ed- enter certain rooms, uh, she would start to feel ill or she'd start to get really bad headaches. One of Ed's first jobs in any house that they investigate is always to head to the basement or at least the deepest part of the house, wherever it's darkest. In the Lutz's house, it was the cellar. According to Ed, this is where evil thrives. It hates God's light. In the cellar, which is quite large in this house, Ed takes out a crucifix and commanded that whatever was there in the name of Jesus Christ to show itself. Nearly immediately, Ed felt as if he was being pushed by a tremendous force from above. As Ed puts it, it felt as if he were standing under a waterfall. It was that strong of a pressure. He then felt what he described as hundreds of pinpoints of electricity hitting his body. And then all of a sudden, he couldn't breathe, as if someone had placed a hot towel over his face. Ed knew exactly what was happening. Again, he commanded in the name of Jesus Christ to leave and to go back to where it came from. And immediately, all of the pressure, the pinpricks, and the suffocating lifted from him. In the meantime, Lorraine is walking around on the first floor. And with her, she has a religious relic. It's a rosary that had been blessed by Padre Pio. Uh, Padre Pio is one of the most famous and beloved saints of the 20th century. He was a Capuchin priest and the recipient of some of the most astonishing spiritual gifts, such as stigmata, bilocation, healing, prophecy, and the ability to read souls. He was born in Italy in 1887, and he died on September 23rd of 1968. Now, as Lorraine is holding this rosary that's been blessed by Padre Pio, she begins to pray. Near the front of the house, in the front room, she could see an image in her head of bodies all lined up on the floor. This is the exact spot where the DeFeo's bodies had been placed before they were taken to the morgue. In the meantime, photos are being taken of the room, and in one photo, there is a large moose head mounted on the wall. It was a gift from George's dad to him. Uh, Within one of the antlers, you can see what appears to be the spitting image of Padre Pio looking down on Lorraine as she stood there. It really is quite an astonishing picture. Lorraine then makes her way to the landing at the top of the first set of stairs with the camera crew. Now, she assumes that Ed is right behind her, but he's still in the cellar. As she ascends the stairs, she feels as if she were standing in front of rushing water. As Lorraine puts it, quote, it's a pressure on your body to such a degree that it's like fighting a cement wall. Lorraine makes it up to the landing and then to the second floor where the sewing room and Missy's bedroom are. 
Immediately upon hitting the second floor, she's drawn to the room on the left, the sewing room. This is the same room where the priest was told by an unseen voice to get out. It's the room where hundreds of flies were killed. And what is not well known is that this same priest, after hearing this voice, actually felt a physical slap in his face. During the entire investigation, the crew had set up static infrared cameras that pointed at the top of the landing on the second floor, towards the second floor, where Missy's room and the sewing room were. It sat on a tripod. No one was in control of it because it was set to take photos at specific intervals. Now, one of the photos captured a picture of what appears to be a little boy who looks to be peeking out of a room. It looks like he has pajamas on and everything about this boy looks totally normal until you look at his eyes. They are nothing but these bright white lights in the sockets. Missy would later say that this was Jody. After the first tour of the property, the Warrens decide that they need to bring in other experts because they want to have a seance. So a week later, another investigation is held, this time with additional mediums and more psychic experts. The main news anchor, Marvin Scott, was also told to go to the house along with Laura. The Warrens arrived at the house along with a camera crew, a handful of experts, and of course there's the people from Channel 5. Um, also in attendance were Jerry Solfin from Duke University, the man that George had initially contacted. There was a Dr. Carlos Osis and Dr. Tenhouse from the New York Psychical Research Institute. Two mediums, Mary Pascarella and Alberta Riley, a parapsychologist, George Kokoros of the Psychical Research Foundation in Durham, North Carolina, Ed and Lorraine Warren, Laura Didio, Marvin Scott from Channel 5, and a news crew. So this is the group that went back on the 6th and investigated. As the group walked around the house, they would give impressions Uh, One of the psychics said that she had the impression of a teenager who had done something that had changed his life entirely and had committed a horrendous act. It is unknown if she was referring to Ron DeFeo, because at the time of the murders, Ron was actually well into his 20s. But it could have meant, however, that he started something as a teenager and eventually that eventually led him down the path to do the horrendous crime. Another psychic said that in a window above her, she saw the face of a young girl looking at her. She then heard crying and weeping. Once inside the house, Lorraine Warren conducted one of two seances. It wasn't until the seance began that things began to happen. Parapsychologist George Kokoros was sitting across from Lorraine when she started to talk about an evil force that was there. Quote, it's a force so heavy, so dark, it goes out with appendages. It doesn't allow you to escape. It follows you. It's nothing human that ever walked this world. It is right from the bowels of the earth. It is so negative. Negative. 
As she spoke, George Kokoros, his hands slid off the table. He bent over, and his teeth began to chatter. He finally got up and just walked away. He said, I couldn't stay there. My teeth were chattering, although I didn't feel cold, and my heart was pounding, and I suddenly felt nauseous. Now, Mary Pascarella, who is president of the Psychic Research uh, Foundation in Connecticut, she also had the same thing happen to her. She, too, had heart palpitations and felt nauseated. She said, quote, It's like a black shadow that forms a hood when it moves. It feels personally threatened. I feel personally threatened. I hear incantations. Now, they stopped this seance and they started up on a second one, but this one had to be stopped because Alberta Riley, a clairvoyant, began to gasp and shake, saying, quote, I see people who were here on a bed in a room. It's happening now. Oh, it makes your heart speed up. I just want to stop. Mary Pascarella went up to Missy's bedroom and laid down on the bed, and she began to say the Our Father. She looked out the doorway and saw a group of hooded figures also saying the Our Father, but they were saying it backwards. She took the holy water she had, and then she held the cross in front of her and said, God is with me. She then shook the holy water toward the figures, and she said she heard a hissing sound like you would hear if you threw water on a fire. Now, it should be stated that according to the Warrens, after this investigation, Mary Pascarella uh, no longer did any further investigations. So once Ed had stopped that second seance, a cameraman with uh, Channel 5, uh, Steve Petropolis, began to walk up the stairs and he was filming, taking his camera, filming. Just a few seconds later, he was back down the stairs trying to catch his breath. He said he had been halfway up when his heart started to pound severely for no apparent reason. He said, I was getting numb. There was a sensation like needles in my legs. He had to leave the house, but he did eventually return. However, years later, he still refuses to talk about the experience. Now, all the investigators are still there at 3.15 in the morning. And Lorraine told Marvin Scott, uh, the reporter from Channel 5, to follow her to the sewing room. As she stood just inside the doorway, she turns to Marvin and says, I hope this is as close to hell as I'll ever get. They believed that the house was infested with a multitude of demonic entities, and they didn't know how to fix it. The Lutzes, they continued to make payments on the house for several months until they realized that nothing could be done and they couldn't move back in. So what they did is they released the house to the bank. Now, the whole Lutz family left behind everything and they moved to California. They actually gave the guy at the ticket counter at the JFK airport the keys and the title to one of the cars they were leaving behind because they didn't need it, didn't want it. Uh, On January 13th, 
1977, another investigator comes in, world-renowned Hans Holzer. Um, now, Laura Didio was also there to help Hans because she, of course, was there during the first investigation. And this one with Hans was done months after the Warrens and their group had conducted theirs. Ethel Johnson, who is a trans medium, often accompanies Hans on investigations. She is able to open herself up to the other side to communicate. Laura is operating the camera while Hans and Ethel, who is Ethel is well into her 70s at this point, when all of a sudden the camera froze and it wouldn't work. Ethel, they still have a tape recording going though. Ethel went into a trance and Laura could see a large Adam's apple appear on Ethel's throat while she was in this trance. She then heard Ethel speak, and Ethel's voice had dropped several octaves. Ethel said, there's an Indian around here. Ethel claims that the house was built over the top of an ancient Indian burial site. Now, Hans, like I said, is recording this whole session with the tape recorder, and Hans asks Ethel, why are they angry? And the voice responds, because this has been a sacred place, and this is over the very, very special chief. Oh, I can't move my face. Hans then says, and what does he make them do? Ethel replies with violence of deaths. I don't know. My skull's cracked and my neck's stretched. Hans then asks, what will the male do under those circumstances? And Ethel replies, anything the Indian desires him to do. According to Hans, the place turned out to be an Indian cemetery that people then built homes on uh, very much to the dismay of the Indian who was buried there. Hans claimed that it was not a truly haunted house, that there were no ghosts or spirits, only the Indian chief. And what he wanted from his point of view was, quote, get off my land. Hans also claims that this is the cause of the hauntings. It's not demons. This makes the Lutzes matters even worse because now new stories hit the news that question whether or not what the Lutzes were saying and what the investigators were saying about the house having demons, if it was actually demons and not this this Indian. Hans further says that from that point on, from the building over the top of this Indian burial, burial ground, phenomenon began to happen within the house. Now, because the Lutzes can't seem to get away from the story, uh, what they do is they agree to work with a brand new writer to publish their story. The Amityville Horror, A True Story by Jay Anson. What most people don't know is that Jay Anson was not the first person to write about the Amityville house. This actually goes to an author named Paul Hoffman, who in 1976 wrote a piece in the Daily News in New York called life in a haunted house. Now the Jay Anson book immediately became a bestseller, 
but the author came under some pretty intense scrutiny because it was discovered that he had taken some creative license with what he wrote. In his response to questions about whether he believed his own story or not, he replied, quote, I'm a writer. That's what I do, is I write. Now, the Warrens, they were not in support of the book. When the author was again confronted, he made a statement to the effect of, quote, All I wanted to do was write a bestseller so that I could retire a millionaire, live on an island, and never have to write again. Jay Anson made millions off of the book. The Lutzes, their whole take was $250,000. Now, curiously, while Jay Anson was writing The Amityville Horror, he had a heart attack while writing the last chapter. He did recover, however. The manuscript for the book was then sent out by Jay or by someone who works with Jay to have it retyped, and the man who was delivering the manuscript was stopped at a red light uh, when his car began to sink. It had been raining really heavy, and a sinkhole had opened up. The car had to be pulled out of this 15-foot hole, and the only thing that was not wet within that car was the manuscript. When the woman finished typing the manuscript... There was a fire in her house. Her and her son escaped. The manuscript, again, was unharmed. Now, Jay Anson, after the Amityville book, he decided to write a second book. And the title of this book was The Devil's Number. Uh, Literally, it was 666. On the last chapter of this book, he had another heart attack and died. Now, shortly after the book came out about Amityville, the movie followed. Now, a little side note here, kind of a little gossipy thing. Uh, In one interview, the actor who played George within the movie, James Brolin, he was more than happy to talk with the Lutzes about what had occurred. But Margot Kidder, who played Kathy, didn't want anything at all to do with them. For her, it was just another job. Uh, The movie, it did end up making millions. And the Lutzes, they would appear on various shows to tell the true side of their story because they were unhappy with how the book and the movie were so embellished. As a matter of fact, most of the money made from the book sales that the Lutzes received was used to sue the makers of the movie, MGM, because the movie took, quote, real license to what actually happened. And lo and behold, here comes the attorney for Ron DeFeo. And, you know, all of a sudden he is one of the harshest critics of the Lutzes. And, you know, maybe this was because he wasn't involved in making money off the deal like he wanted to in the first place. I mean, that's pure opinion on my part. Uh, So in order to tell, to prove that they were telling the truth, the Lutzes agreed to take a lie detector test. And they took this test by the most well-known and well-renowned examiners in the world, Chris Gugas and Michael Rice. Now, Chris gave George's uh, test while Michael gave uh, Kathy hers. They were told that no matter what the outcome, the results would be made public. The Lutzes agreed. 
both of them passed with flying colors. Now, Chris, who had given the test to George, was dumbfounded. He could not believe that what he had just heard from George about the house and tested him on was actually true. As the years went on, ironically, uh, many of the men who had gone into the house, just the men, died of heart-related problems. Even Ed Warren had a heart attack shortly after being in the house. And kind of an offshoot and a weird, ironic twist, uh, the house at 112 Ocean Avenue actually has a latitude of 40 Point six six six. In 1980, the Lutzes were introduced to the Archbishop of Canterbury's exorcist. And this uh, gentleman's name was Reverend Neil Smith. He looked right at Kathy and said, you're still affected by this. He then performed a blessing on Kathy and it actually worked. Um, the house, even after all this time, even still had an effect on the Warrens themselves. Uh, One of the owners, uh, after the Lutzes, they decided to have those distinctive windows removed, the ones that kind of look like uh, slanty eyes, um, removed and replaced. One owner even went so far as to change the address because so many people were visiting the house because they were so curious. The people, however, who bought the house right after the Lutz family uh, was said to have entered into a deal with American International Pictures and they were going to sell them the house for $250,000. Now, that's equivalent to $1.3 million today because um, so that this filming company uh, could use it in a movie. The studio, however, wasn't allowed by the city to film there. So the owners got stuck with the house that they didn't even really want. They did say that the house was beautiful and there was nothing but good feelings in the house, you know, which in my opinion, this can never be true because six people died there violently. Uh, Shortly after this couple purchased the home, uh, People Magazine actually came and visited the house. While walking through the home, They could smell something foul. And when they asked the owner about it, she said that it was from some coffee she had dropped on the rug about a week ago. When the folks at People Magazine went to leave and get back into their car, their car actually started on fire. Um, None of the owners after the Lutzes have said anything about the house being haunted However, uh, Laura Didio, the Channel 5 reporter who had been following the case from the beginning, has had some unusual conversations with uh, people that have purchased the home since then. Um, One of the owners spent a good, at least a good 10 minutes telling Laura that the whole story was a bunch of bullshit. And when Laura brought up the Lutzes, this person's whole demeanor just changed and they went off and they said no it was George Lutz who brought the darkness into this house so if there's anything to take away from this story it's that something most definitely did happen and likely continues to happen within the home whether you believe or not the fact is 
an entire family left all of their worldly possessions inside a beautiful home that they loved to flee from something that scared them so badly they didn't want to go back. Ed Warren once stated, quote, a skeptical public is the best protection that devils have. And devils do exist. Evil exists. Thank you all for listening to this two-part long episode of Beach House 34. Uh, I truly thank you so much for hanging in there. I know this was really long. Um, Thank you again. Uh, Please don't hesitate to get in contact with me on uh, Instagram. As usual, I have all the links and everything uh, pertaining to this story as to where if you want to watch some of the documentaries, you want to uh, uh, just read through some of the same news stories uh, that were referenced, I will have those up on the Instagram page as usual. And um, as always, thank you. Thank you. And until next time.